This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They never sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The next reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray as we come to this extraordinary passage from the book of Philippians. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet and a light unto our paths and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, where can we find true peace and deep joy? Let me start with a true statement that nevertheless we human beings like to often deny. We human beings are emotional creatures. I think we like to imagine that we are reasonable and logical, but it's our feelings that steer us. I remember talking to a, 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 a journalist once and she told me that the way she writes things is she appeals to people's reason at first, their sense of them being rational, and then she turns to the emotional story at the end because that's where it really gets us. If we imagined ourselves as Boeing 747s, I'm not sure if you've ever imagined yourself as a Boeing 747, but just go with me here, then our emotions are... Uh, as the psychologist Jonathan Haidt has pointed out, definitely the pilot flying the plane with reason as the co-pilot at best, offering advice and taking the controls occasionally. And during some time off this week, 
I reread the great stories about Sherlock Holmes, the famous detective. We admire Sherlock Holmes for his fine mind, of course, his powers of analysis and deduction and inference. Elementary, my dear Watson, he would say. His encyclopedic knowledge of everything from footprints to soil types to the different types of cigar ash and the air of rational detachment which makes him the sleuth par excellence. And yet, as you read the stories, you recognise that the author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, has painted Sherlock Holmes as a moody and lonely character given to long bouts of depression and addicted to injecting himself with a cocaine solution. The biggest mystery in the books is in fact Sherlock Holmes himself, a genius who cannot master his own emotional life. And in that Sherlock Holmes is as human as every one of us. We pursue experiences and professions and relationships because we believe that they will make us feel a certain way, whether that is accomplished or fulfilled or satisfied or happy or however we term it. But our feelings, happy or sad, come to us from some strange place that we don't control. Sometimes this is because circumstances happen to us that make us feel a certain way. We have experiences, that's why they're called experiences, they come to us from outside. An accident, a, a broken heart, a grief, a, a pandemic. Sometimes it's just the chemical balance of our bodies or the imbalance, you might say. It is just who we are that we feel the way we do. All this means that human happiness is elusive and ephemeral. We cannot live happily ever after. We cannot guarantee that because the only things we know for certain are that disease and death are coming for us along with other experiences that we cannot control. And that gives us a good reason to worry. We can only approximate happiness if we shut that thought out for a while. Happiness is a form of escape on that reading. And for all our technological prowess and, and progress, we do not, as a society, appear to be more happy and less anxious than those who have gone before us. In fact, the opposite is true. And this is all without adding a pandemic into the mix. So where might we find true peace and deep joy? Now, any amateur psychologist will tell you that you just can't tell someone to be more happy or less worried. You know, buck up, cheer up, put on a happy face. We cannot simply control these by an act of the will or think them away. That's why so often in the search for this elusive peace and joy, we resort to substances. But when we turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 to 7, don't we see Paul doing exactly this? He says, rejoice. And then he says, don't worry. Picking up what Jesus himself has said, don't worry. And at this point we might say, Paul, this is greeting card level advice. It's not much better than those depression era songs. The sunny side of the street, put on a happy face. You're never fully dressed without a smile. In which case we might find verse 4 of chapter 4 of the letter to the Philippians, one of the most crushing verses in the Bible, especially if you're feeling bleak, especially if in the grip of 
a depression of some kind, as so many people are. It just seems too peppy, too impossibly optimistic, too full of fake it till you make it denial of reality. But we need to look more closely here. Because in these verses, Paul gives us a frame for our experience, a frame for our turbulent emotional life, by giving us two profound realities and an extraordinary promise, which help us to know true peace, true joy. So what about this frame, the two profound realities and an extraordinary promise? Well, the first reality is hidden somewhat in that first verse, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. We aren't, in fact, simply called here to cheer up. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. And what does this mean? To rejoice in something is to celebrate specifically because of it. And the specific reason we have to rejoice is what? It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And why can we rejoice in him? Well, Paul has already told us the Jesus story in his letter, specifically in chapter 2, that extraordinary chapter where he tells us that Jesus Christ, who was in in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, following God's plan by obediently going even to the cross, there to die for our sins. This was the bleakest of tragedies, or so it appeared. But God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Can you see what shape this story takes? This story goes to the middle of the mess. Jesus experiences human life alongside us. He was tested in every way as we are, yet did not sin. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He prayed that the cup of his death be taken from him. And yet... The path of the humble Lord, Jesus Christ, took him from death on the cross to the highest exalted place to have the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow and declare that he is Lord. Now, by faith in Jesus Christ, this story belongs to us as well. We can rejoice in his story even in the middle of everything that we experience, because that story is ours. He bears our sins to the cross and rises to defeat the death that threatens us. In him, you and I have real hope. Now, I'll come back to hope and how crucial hope is a little bit later, but let me tell you now the second profound reality, that first reality, the humble Lord, we rejoice in him. In him as Lord. Well, the second profound reality that Paul mentions in these verses is that the Lord is near. In what sense does he mean the Lord is near? Paul could mean that Jesus is coming soon. We are to expect his arrival, his return in a very short time. He's near in time. The end of all things is nigh. But it could also refer to the nearby presence of the Lord Jesus 
that Jesus promises to be with us by his spirit, as we hear in John's gospel in chapters 14 through to 17, where he, he says that he will be present by his spirit. This language is very common in the Old Testament, the language of God living with his people. And in Psalm 145, we hear that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. In Psalm 34, we hear that he, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Now, both the nearness in time and the nearness in being close to us, both of these are true, theologically speaking, biblically speaking. But I think here, Paul wants to make the point that the Lord is close, is with the Philippians. He is not far off, but close by. We are not, forever, we are not ever alone. We are not forgotten or overlooked. The Lord is with us. So these are the two great realities for the church. The Lord is near. He is proximate to us, adjacent, close. And the humble Lord, Jesus Christ, is exalted. And then there's the great promise. If we flip down to verse 7, to this extraordinary verse, we hear here a promise, a promise that as we are unfolded into those two great realities, we will have a sentry to guard us, that the peace of God will be given to us to protect our hearts and our minds. Now, Philippi was a garrison town, and the sight of sentries would have been familiar to members of the church. Indeed, Paul had been put in prison, you remember, when he visited Philippi and guarded by the jailer who would later become a Christian. I wonder whether the jailer was sitting here when this was sitting in the room when the letter was first read and that his ears may have pricked up when he heard the idea of there being a sentry for our hearts and minds. What do you think of when you think of a sentry? Well, I, uh, I think of this. I've got a picture here of... Um, uh, uh, a boy in 1977 in front of Windsor Castle, uh, that's me, in case you haven't guessed, I'm the one on the right, the little guy, and uh, I stood alongside this sentry and he was guarding the Queen who lives in Windsor Castle, um, and then we asked him, uh, in, I've even got my own gun there, I'm not sure if you'd be allowed to do that now, but then we asked him to move away and I stood in the box there as a sentry protecting the Queen, and the Queen was never safer Back in, 97, back in 1977 with uh, that fearsome sight. Now, this would have been a familiar sight in the city of Philippi as a symbol of the Pax Romana, which wasn't peace in the sense of an agreed peace between warring parties, a, a treaty, but peace because Rome was in charge and had put an end to all opposition. The peace of God in Jesus Christ is like that only greater. It is peace because all that opposes God and his people has been defeated, because Jesus is triumphant, because he has that name that is above every name, and because every knee will bow to him as Lord. So how does God's peace now stand as sentry over our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? Well, this peace the peace that is declared in Jesus Christ is so great that it surpasses our understanding. It cannot be prescribed in a pill or drunk from a bottle or achieved through a technique. It comes down from above. And well, we may wonder at it that God would forgive us our sins. Why does he do that? How does he do that? It is extraordinary. 
It surpasses our understanding. And yet in that peace, we receive a real restfulness, a deep sense of being reconciled to God, the ultimate protection. We're at peace with God because God has made peace with us through the death of his son. We live now in God's peace because he has won a victory for us over sin and death and everything that assails us. And in that peace, our hearts and our minds are protected from all the uncertainties and doubts that we have. It is not that our anxieties magically disappear, but that we are protected even from them. As we lie awake with our thoughts racing, worrying what will become of us or of those we love, raking over the coals of our failures and regrets and disappointments, feeling terrible about our sins, know this, that God's peace is given to you so that you don't need to be anxious, so that your heart and your mind are protected. In Christ you see that God knows what it is like to be you, and yet God's peace has the last word. It stands sentry over you. So these are our two realities and our great promise that stand as a, that become a great frame for us, a great place for us to live. And so with these two realities and this one great promise, we can see what Paul now is asking us to do when he asks us to rejoice. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to be gentle. He wants us to turn our worries into prayers. So first of all, let us rejoice. This is not a command to have a different mood, but to remember the joy that we have in Christ. Christianity is something completely realistic. It is not a fantasy. It is not in denial of the harshness of reality. Paul has spoken openly about his own sufferings and about his disappointments and about his longing for the Philippians. And he's talked about the sufferings of the Philippians in this letter. He isn't now overlooking these and saying, put on a happy face. He, he, we, what we can't see now is the tears that smudge the ink on the original copy of this letter. But in Christ, we have a hope that makes it possible to rejoice even when we're, in the, when we're in the midst of trials and trouble. We have available to us a joy that does not deny our tears or our fears, but says to us, these are not ultimate. Life may be tragic, but in Jesus Christ, it is not a tragedy. The key to true joy, then, is hope in the Lord. So let us, you and I, practice our joy tuned to the key of hope. Christians will shed tears. Christians will lament. But we should never be a gloomy lot. We ache with longing that the world and we ourselves are not yet right. And yet we rejoice that one day these things will be put to rights, including we ourselves. And this is something we are given one another for, to remind each other to rejoice in the Lord. It's why uh, this separation, this period of separation, has been in particular difficult, I think, because we haven't been able to gather in order to remind each other to rejoice. 
It's why Christians have always been known as those who sing, even in dire circumstances. Paul and Silas, back in Philippi, when they brought the gospel to Philippi, when they were sitting in prison, do you remember what they did? They sang hymns, even in the blackness of that night. As Charles Wesley puts it in a hymn we're going to sing a little bit uh, in a little while. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and Judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. So lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say. Rejoice. I hope as we sing that hymn, you will immerse yourself in it. That you'll see yourself included in the story that it tells. So rejoice. But second, be gentle. It's fascinating that Paul places gentleness right here in the midst of this encouragement to rejoice and not to worry. Gentleness or meekness, as the word is translated in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek or the gentle, is risky. We're often afraid to be gentle because we'll be taken advantage of. If you're gentle, then the aggressive and the dominant might come in and take over. And so that's what we tend to do. We get aggro. Aggro comes from our anxiety and our fear that we will not have what we think we need. But Christians have a new hope. We have that Philippians 2 story in the Lord. And we know the nearness of his presence. And because the Lord is near... We are not to be known for our ambition and our aggression, but for our gentleness, just as our Saviour was. We don't need to dominate and control because we have a secure hope, because we worship the Lord whose name is above every name. The humble Lord Jesus is near to us. And as he put grasping for power aside, so can we. This ought to be one of our hallmarks Our gentleness ought to be known to all. It ought to be a reflection of the fact that we live in these realities and we have that extraordinary promise. And that's why also we can turn our worries into prayers. And we do, of course, worry. I've been thinking about this this week. Uh, As I've been thinking about this sermon, I've been counting my worries. I've been aware perhaps more than usual, of the worries that I have, the anxieties that that face me as they do everyone. But Paul says here, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's not a concealment of worry, is it? It's not a denial of those things that surround us or try us, but it's rather turning them turning them to God, turning them into prayers, or converting them into something else, taking them to the Lord in prayer. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, one of my favourite verses, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Do not let, then, worry and anxiety get a grip over you, but take them to the Lord in prayer. We are sometimes afraid, I think, that our requests are too piddling and sometimes we're afraid that they are too impossible and so we don't pray. When I sent a text to people just a few weeks ago asking how I could pray, a number of people, very unselfishly, I think, said, oh, look, there are people who need more prayer than I do. 
But I think the mistake here is that we imagine that God has a sort of limit of prayer that he can cope with or that he thinks our needs are too insignificant. Whatever it is, turn to the generous Lord in prayer. Ask him. He longs to give good things to his children. He is not too busy. He does not have limited resources. He is ready to hear you, however insignificant you think it is to ask. But also, he's the God of the impossible. This is the God who called everything a thing out of nothing. This is the God who raises the dead. This is the God who in Jesus shows his power, his extraordinary power. There is nothing that you cannot ask Jesus. There is nothing that you cannot bring to him in prayer. And asking God for things shows that you need him. He's not wishing you'd grow up and stand on your own two feet. Now there's an old cliche that you often hear, I still hear it sometimes, God helps those who help, th- who help themselves. Now, that is almost blasphemously wrong. The Bible says, not that, but that God helps those who cannot help themselves and know it. When we come to God with our requests, large or small, we honour him as God, our Father. We show that we are his children. We depend on him, and he loves it when we do. So take your worries to the Lord in prayer. Um, If you have trouble sleeping, I don't guarantee that prayer will send you to sleep. But sometimes people say to me, you know, I I start to pray, but then I fall asleep. And I, I wonder, you know, if that is not the peace of God that passes all understanding. There's something right about that. Prayer does not keep us awake because as we pray, we let go of those things that worry us and vex us and we pass them on to the God who knows all things and who cares for us deeply. This takes us then back to that verse, that verse 7, that wonderful promise that as we take our worries to the Lord in prayer, the peace of God that we cannot understand why he should make peace with us, why he should want to forgive us, that that peace will stand sentry over our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Are you worried? I know that some of you are worried about your health, worried about the health of a loved one. I know that some of you are lonely. I know that some of you are anxious or depressed. I know that some of you are in financial difficulty. I know that some of you have a troubled marriage or family life. I know that some of you face the stress of examinations. I know that some of you are suffering in your workplace or disappointed in what your work has given you. I know that some of you are afraid of what COVID-19 may yet do. Have you spoken to God? Have you spoken to him? You don't need eloquent words. You just need to say what is vexing you, what is worrying you. You just need to take those to the Lord in prayer. Have you asked him for his help? Because in the very act of asking for his help, we step into the realities that he has made clear to us. 
We remember his nearness to us in Jesus Christ and we access the peace of God which passes all understanding and will guard our restless minds and our troubled hearts in him. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.